This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So welcome to, uh, to this special open session, everyone, uh, on the response to the global HIV and HCV epidemics. And I wanted to start off by thanking all the co-sponsors uh, for this particular session. Uh, it's quite a group. We have the Center of Emerging Neglected Diseases uh, that's housed here at UC Berkeley, and then the Forum, which is my organization, the School of Public Health, the VISPA office, uh, which is the Visiting Scholars in Postdoctoral Affairs, and the Vice Chancellor for Research is also contributing. I wanted to just give, because we have so many people that are visiting this class as opposed to the students that have been coming to all the previous 11 sessions, a little bit of the history and evolution of this course and why the forum is, is sponsoring this course here in um, UC Berkeley through the School of Public Health. The forum's program is actually based in Washington, D.C. But we have so many multiple examples of what I call drug development in action. Uh, and HIV and HCV are definitely two of them that the forum has, has been working on. And we're starting some new projects, one on liver fibrosis, which is just being launched. There's a lot of drug development activity going on in antifibrotics to treat uh, people with NASH and progressed liver disease. Uh, we have a partnership with the FDA and with the European Medicines Association, and also uh, a lot of partnerships with basically all the pharmaceutical and diagnostic companies that are involved in uh, drug development in, the, in these areas. And this also then offers, I thought, some very great educational opportunities in terms of internships and fellowships. Uh, we've had many Berkeley students come and spend time with us in Washington and get hands-on experience regarding how policymakers make decisions around drug development, but also other public health issues. And then uh, the last part of our educational mission is then offering this graduate-level course in drug development here for students that are interested in biotech. And so why the focus on HIV and HCV? Uh, it's, it's really a very much an ongoing, dynamic, public health responsive drug development program uh, in both of these areas. The HCV has been much more recent, but HIV has been going on uh, for a long time, as you all know. And we've seen very rapid, but science and evidence-driven adaptation of, of the policies for submission of NDA packages to the FDA, so that the FDA has really been able to adapt to the new science and, and bring about these changes and, and the requirements uh, for a filing that was in part due to having these multi-stakeholder dialogues that allowed that to happen. So it's really a real-time laboratory for regulatory science. And in terms of the HIV epidemic, it really has been the driver for major changes in drug development that have then affected the whole regulatory program and also for other diseases. And it's really been a paradigm shift in terms of accelerated approval, uh, the validation of surrogate markers, expanded access, compassionate use, etc. And we have 25 unique drugs in six classes developed over a period of 30 years or less, six fixed-dose combinations for use in this country. And there's over 150 generic drug products available for global use. And one of the readings you were assigned was written by Andy Canonis Rivera, who was an intern with us um, a couple of years ago, who actually researched the policy changes behind um, 
behind the, the PEPFAR program that allowed the manufacturing of generic drug products that were manufactured outside of the U.S. and just used in PEPFAR countries outside of the U.S., but reviewed and approved by the FDA. And that was really what allowed the PEPFAR program to move forward. HCV has also much more recently seen very rapid advancement, and this is a figure. Uh, I'm really showing off our interns uh, here today. This is Courtney Hutchison, who did an internship with us this summer, who has a paper coming out in clinical pharmacology and therapeutics. And as you can see here at the bottom, you know, we used to just have interferon monotherapy. This is the 1990s. Then uh, shortly after 2000, we had pegylated interferon rabavarin, which was a very onerous treatment. And then the first direct-acting antivirals were approved in 2012. And then we had the next group of anti-direct-acting antivirals approved um, uh, just at the beginning of this, end of last year. And one more um, submission is here, uh, which has been uh, submitted. And then I didn't even update this from the most recent conference in London, but this was the ASLD conference in D.C. last, uh, last November. And then this, uh, these were data that were presented at the CROI conference in March in Boston. And you can see that in terms of the sustained virologic response rate, we've gone all the way from 7 to 20% to basically now 95 to 100%. Uh, for all kinds of patients, all kinds of genotypes, and it's just impossible to make this table to really show the advancement because of the incredible um, different types of patient populations that can now be treated with nearly 100% response rate, and also shortening the treatment to 6 to 12 weeks without the need for interferon and ribavirin. So that's, that's an incredible advancement over the last few years. So in terms of the focus we have at the forum on drug development and regulatory processes, uh, the advantages that we bring to the table is that we really involve all concerned stakeholders. We provide the cross-Atlantic regulatory perspectives and also the cross-Atlantic community and academic perspectives. I always like to show off this slide because it shows you all the different organizations and entities that we work with that are either formal members of the forum or collaborators that we have worked with, and many of you are in the room here today. So the forum at Berkeley then in the Bay Area, there's a lot of biotech here, we all know that, and there's a lot of programs here and at UC Santa Cruz and UCSF and translational medicine, bioengineering, etc. But a lot of that really focused on the earlier stages of discovery and R&D, and what we can provide is experience in the later phases when things actually go into clinical trials and get approved and, and looking at things like post-marketing safety, et cetera. So I think it's just a very complementary uh, focus that we bring to this topic. In terms of the public health burden, HIV, I think this is not news to anyone in this room. Uh, 35.3 million people living with HIV worldwide, and that's actually gone up because people are living longer. Um, so in South Saharan Africa, that represents 1 in 20 adults. Uh, but the good news is that new infections are declining, only 2.3 million in 2012, which was a 
a 3% reduction from 2001. And deaths are also declining, only 1.6 million deaths, which were down from 2.3 in 2005. So a lot of advancement, not just in drug development, but also on the global scale. And that happened because there was a lot of activism, there were champions, and there was funding. And just a few pictures of people that you know well, uh, the Elizabeth Glazer AIDS Foundation, the Ryan White Care Act, Ted Kennedy, who was really responsible for putting that in place, and of course also people with high-level impact. Um, and a lot of funding and organizational support through OGAC and PEPFAR, the Global Fund, the World Bank, UNAIDS, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, etc. When we then look at the global health burden of HCV, we have about 130 to 180 million infections worldwide. That really represents 2 to 3% of the total population, with more than 350,000 deaths. And these are estimates that are known to be too low. There's really much more than that with very many very serious long-term complications. And and this map shows you the concentrated areas, so where it's red is where it's really bad. But what's also this disturbing is the many white areas uh, that you can see in places where there really is no data. So when we then look at the response to HCV, we say activism, question mark, who's championing it, and who's funding it. And if we go back and look at the funding and organizational support for HIV, and then we have HCV, and there's no PEPFAR for HCV, there's no global fund, uh, the World Bank doesn't have its own program, there's no UN HCV as there is UN AIDS, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation so far has not really made a commitment to this area at all. So two totally different scenarios for what's actually happening. I had assigned two readings uh, just this week because these were New England Journal of Medicine editorials or commentaries that came out, one by Raymond Chung. And I wanted to just point out a few things that, he, that they said in this editorial, and uh, which kind of goes back to the role of the regulatory process. So it was when the Food and Drug Administration agreed to permit phase two trials to use new combinations of HCV DAAs without requiring a standard of care comparator. And these are things we've discussed in class before. And that really then allowed the pace of the ensuing clinical drug development um, to happen breathtaking. And it may be possible to imagine a global eradication of HCV infection, but three major challenging challenges remain. So it's the same thing as with HIV. So infection is often diagnosed at a late stage, the high cost of direct acting antivirals, and reinfection remains a possibility. But in terms of the length of treatment and the actual achievement of a cure in HCV, is a very stark contrast to HIV, which still requires lifelong treatment, and and we can't cure it, and once a person is infected, the infection will last for life. A second paper that uh, we had assigned uh, was by Chana Jaya Sekera from Stanford. And Chana, are you here? Uh, He he was going to try and make it to class tonight because he was just down the road. He's down the road at Stanford talking about the need to develop programs for treating hepatitis C in lower-income countries. And um, I'll just focus on this last uh, statement here right out of his paper. Seldom in the history of medicine have such definite curative therapies been developed for a disease so widespread and consequential to human health. We believe that robust efforts towards equitable access to these advancements are imperative. 
And with that, uh, I'd like to introduce our three guest lecturers and panelists. Uh, they have kindly um, decided not to use slides, so that makes it easier um, on you. And uh, what we will do is I'll ask them to come up and, and take a place at the table here. And we will ask each of you to start off with some comments. Um, and then we will um, go into a moderated panel discussion. And then at the end, I'll ask Art Reingold, uh, who's leading the Institute for Global Health for, this, for the School of Public Health, uh, to make a few closing comments. So that's it in terms of presentations. And Greg, um, actually, let's start at the other end. Okay. So, Eric, if you would start and give us some of your thoughts about the, the key factors. Um, so Eric uh, Gooseby is uh, now at UCSF in the Department of Global Health Sciences. Uh, he used to run the PEPFAR program, so he's Ambassador Gooseby. And you were in Washington for... Five. Six, five years. I thought it was six years. Been there for five years. Yep. So, absolute first-hand experience with the challenges of implementation of, of programs, um, the lack of regulatory infrastructure, the availability of generics. Um, you know all of those different things. So, in terms of the class here and people interested in both drug development and regulatory issues, what were some of your key? Findings and experiences at PEPFAR that you'd like to share. Okay. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me to participate in this uh, forum. I guess um, PEPFAR's uh, focus on um, the response was really uh, an attempt to, in 2003, uh, there were only 50,000 people in sub-Saharan Africa receiving antiretroviral therapy. Uh, the morbidity and mortality was huge. Uh, the nature of HIV is that it uh, dominates and congests uh, inpatient services and medical delivery systems. So if any of you had traveled in sub-Saharan Africa in those years, you would have seen uh, late-stage disease coming into uh, the medical delivery system through hospitals. There was no real outpatient uh, identification and response. Uh, in the hospital, you had um, a full census with opportunistic infections. Uh, it was common to see uh, two to four people in a bed, uh, people in the hallways lying under the bed, uh, on mats uh, or on the floor, uh, as well as out into uh, the area around uh, the hospital. Um, people were waiting six weeks to two months to bury their loved ones because the queue was so long. Uh, places like Zambia and around Lusaka were uh, looking for uh, running out of wood because of coffin manufacturing. Uh, there were countless examples of uh, local bush pilots uh, in airplanes flying over areas that had used certain villages as visual <coughs> markers at night for night flying because they'd see the lights from the village um, that uh, just went black because whole villages uh, uh, were lost in this uh, unresponded to epidemic. Out of the 34 million people uh, 30, more like 30, somewhere around 32 to 34 million people. The, the number has changed uh, with better ability to um, model and guesstimate. But 34 million people, you had about 
of those individuals on the planet in sub-Saharan Africa. The majority of them were in 36 countries. Um, and uh, in 2003, uh, President Bush, uh, because of uh, a commitment really to um, try to respond to the suffering and death that uh, this disease uh, was putting forth, uh, started uh, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. It started in 15 countries, went to 78 countries, uh, had uh, a focus on treatment, care, and prevention services, as well as uh, focusing on orphans and vulnerable children. Uh, with all of the deaths, a uh, tremendous number of orphans uh, came out of just HIV-related orphan uh, uh, created, where orphans were created. Uh, PEPFAR in t 2008 had 1.7 million people that were uh, being treated with antiretrovirals, had about the same number of orphans and vulnerable children, had a rudimentary prevention of mother-to-child transmission program because it's really very difficult to jump right to a uh, finding HIV-positive pregnant women without a treatment capability in place. So uh, the early years of PEPFAR really trickled uh, prevention of transmission to, uh, to babies. Uh, pediatric care was not done in any numbers in those years. Uh, in 2009, uh, with uh, the President Obama's administration, um, the ability to um, expand services was really dependent on our ability to uh, use the resources we had uh, better uh, and uh, allow uh, for an expansion of uh, numbers of people uh, and a drop in the number of people dying, uh, numbers of people entered. So from the, at the end of 08, the 1.7, uh, by the end of uh, 13, went up to 6.8 million. Uh, so 1.7 to 6.8. The orphans and vulnerable children, about the same number of orphans in 08, uh, went up to uh, 5.8 million. We had uh, a prevention of mother-to-child uh, effort that was intensified in partnership with UNAIDS and UNICEF as the central partners, but uh, many uh, played a role in making this happen, uh, the Gates Foundation in particular, uh, allowing us to um, uh, start a PMTCT program. In 2009, there were about 490,000 children born on the planet, HIV positive. Um, most all of them were coming from six countries in sub-Saharan Africa, but if you went up to 22, you had uh, 87, 87, almost 90 percent. Uh, 72,000 children were born in Nigeria alone. It was the worst country, the highest burden, and then South Africa came after that. Um, that um, uh, <coughs> dropped with the kind of rolling out of prevention of mother-to-child transmission, going from an averapine-based single-dose pill uh, to two drugs and then uh, ending in uh, the last year and a half uh, with a recommendation to use three drugs for an HIV-positive pregnant woman, uh, which uh, took your ability to drop transmission down to less than uh, one and a half percent, less than two percent in some studies. Uh, as you remember, uh, you're, if you're HIV positive, untreated, your chance of transmitting to the fetus and the baby uh, is about 25 to 27 percent. Uh, 
Uh, with uh, nevirapine, it dropped down to about 12% single-dose therapy uh, during uh, labor and followed, followed uh, with the mother and baby after. Uh, and then with uh, AZT, 3TC, or tenofovir, went uh, with uh, mtricitabine, um, the uh, Truvada tablet, uh, two drugs. Uh, it dropped down to somewhere around five. And then with three drugs, it dropped to the below two. And in some studies with good uh, compliance, good adherence, it drops down below one. So we were able to take the 490. Uh, it's now uh, dropped that. So just to give you a feel for, for the uh, scale of this, in uh, 2012, in 2013, in 2012, there were... Um, we did about 50 million HIV tests. We found 790,000 HIV positive pregnant women and started them on antiretroviral drugs, either two or three, depending on if you're uh, early in that year, it was two, and then about in the middle of the year, we, we flipped over to uh, really recommending insisting on three. Uh, dropped that down uh, to the 790,000 women on drug, and that prevented 240,000 babies from being born positive. So we're now somewhere uh, around 180,000 children born annually. This hasn't been published yet, but the numbers are, uh, are in uh, OGAC, uh, in PEPFAR now. So that publication will come out over the next uh, little bit. But I say that to, to show you the scale uh, but also the complexity of converging uh, the science and our knowledge and understanding of what we need to do, what we can do to impact uh, these numbers, uh, but the logistics of getting uh, procurement distribution systems, hospitals and clinics, uh, both uh, the adult medicine, pediatric, and OB-GYN uh, care, health professionals uh, aligned, with uh, systems that allow for rapid identification, uh, not uh, a loss to follow-up. We, we have uh, a huge uh, kind of bleed-out rate with tested to staged to initiation of antiretrovirals, uh, continuation, and, uh, and then the uh, ability to get that uh, individual uh, un, undetectable as the uh, final target. There's a there's a huge uh, drop-off there that we really uh, focused on aggressively with the PMTCT scale-up. So the ability to do that and to move from the 1.7 to the 6.8 million people on drug, uh, just from a PEPFAR program's perspective, would not have happened had the generics not been available. Uh, the first decision we made when I started as the uh, OGAC uh, Global AIDS Coordinator uh, was the uh, identification and removal of D4T as a first-line drug in many of the countries we were in. This is a drug that's very effective in, in stopping replication, but it is uh, fraught with uh, peripheral neuropathy uh, and uh, pancreatitis that is quite severe and, in many patients, permanent. Uh, numbness and tingling, burning of the feet and hands, uh, so much so that you know, clothing or uh, a um, sheet uh, brushing over a foot can send uh, kind of lancinating pains up, up uh, the patient's leg. Uh, many patients uh, in the early years committed suicide around the severity and chronicity of that pain. They were unable to, to cope with it. Uh, 
so this is severe pain in many patients. Uh, so we were able to move to a drug that uh, has been shown to have very few side effects, uh, a concern around uh, renal insufficiency and bone density. Uh, uh, you can kind of uh, identify the cohorts or individuals that may be at highest risk for that, but these are rare events. Uh, essentially drugs that are well-tolerated. Patients often don't know they're on them. Uh, having those drugs available in a generic form allowed us to uh, move from uh, the one seven to the 6.8. I would just say uh, in, um, in uh, the uh, ability for us to do that uh, had to have uh, the complicity of both the brand manufacturer, in this case it was Gilead, uh, and uh, high-quality um, drugs coming out of a number of generic manufacturers that were mostly based in India at the time. And uh, without that uh, collegial uh, willingness to uh, share uh, the chemistry and uh, the uh, kind of logistics, uh, the procurement distribution logistics, uh, without the uh, ability to uh, open that up, uh, we would still be looking at either inferior drugs or uh, drugs that cost so much because of brands. So the other thing I should mention, and then I'll uh, be quiet, uh, in, um, uh, we had about 57% of the drugs in 2009 were, um, uh, were uh, still uh, branded. Okay, so we were still using brand drugs. That had come down from really about 90% uh, over the last, in, a, in the late 07 to 08 period. So relatively recent. Uh, we shifted it to 98% generic. Uh, the only non-generic drugs we uh, purchased uh, for PEPFAR really fell into second-line pediatric drugs. So, um, so it really is a... Uh, a funny way to kind of run an airline when you think about it, but uh, our drug, uh, we are dependent on the pharmaceutical industry to uh, take the drug to the point where we are ready to put pills in mouth. And uh, until uh, governments or uh, institutions like WHO uh, start uh, manufacturing drugs or I think more appropriately uh, uh, contract out with drug companies to manufacture uh, orphan drugs or drugs that are uh, or uh, drugs that are for diseases that aren't uh, ever going to be profitable. Uh, we are going to be dependent on this relationship and I think it is the future for us to learn how to understand the challenges and issues that are in front of pharmaceutical companies uh, to understand them in detail, so there's a trust that evolves out of it, uh, and uh, to work together so we can drop morbidity and mortality on the planet. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Eric. Um, Steph. Do you want me to go next? Okay, I will. Please switch order. If, if, That's if how I had listed. Okay, go ahead. Any particular questions, or should I? Um, I think if you could um, talk from your perspective and, and both HIV and HCV, mm-hmm. um, why, I mean, it, it's no secret in the room that, that Gilead has been particularly proactive about 
about forming these relationships uh, with generic manufacturers, and um, and you've had that vision early on. And when I asked you to come to this class, I said uh, the message I want the class to leave with is, it you know if you're going to develop a product or a device, you need to have global access in mind from the very beginning. And I think. Uh, the way your company has approached that is is a very valuable lesson, uh, and, and you know other companies are doing that as well. But I think Gilead really has taken on some some major leadership here. So if you could talk about that perspective, why you guys are doing that, and and how you see the future of both HIV and HCV treatment. Okay, so um, I think I'll start with why why are we doing that, mm-hmm. and. Um, I get, that, I get that question a lot, and um, you know, people are looking for different motivations in terms of what we're doing globally. And I think there's, there's two simple ways to answer that. Number one is because it's the right thing to do, because patients need the drug um, in these markets, in these markets that, um, that Eric's talking about. And number two, because we can do it, um, that we set up a model at Gilead where we can be a very profitable company to generate the research and development incentives that Eric spoke about, but also be able to uh, transfer that that, uh, that science over to um, uh, benefit uh, uh, patients where, you know, simply pain even at cost is, is a challenge for them. So this, this started in 2000. In 2001, we launched our first real product at Gilead. We'd been around since 1987, and we're just located over in Foster City. Um, and in 2001, we launched a product called uh, Viriad or Tenofovir Disoprosyl Fumarate. And this was a, um, uh, uh, one of the drugs in the cocktail for HIV that was unique in terms of you know, what Eric spoke about in terms of had a very good safety profile, also a very good resistance profile. You didn't, you didn't see development of resistance to this, which was at the time one of the ma- major challenges of treating HIV. Um, that's pretty much gone away now. You don't really see, hear people talking that much about resistance anymore like we did 10, 15 years ago. That was the big deal. And then it's also one pill once a day. And this was very simple to take. You could take it with or without food. So a lot of the complicated regimens that people were taking became much more simple with this one. So at the time before that, people were taking 30, 32 pills a day. So if you think about the developing world, being able to make things more simple, much safer, where they're not getting the neuropathy and other issues that Eric was speaking about, um, you're not seeing development of resistance, which is really hard to track and monitor in a developing world setting um, and, you know, very, very safe. This was an ideal drug for the developing world. And I always remember that um, our CEO, John Martin, came to me and he said, you need to figure out how to get this available in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa and places that really need this. And so this is 2001. And so I was fairly new at Gilead at the time. I'd been at Gilead for about two years. And so I thought this is a great project. So I did research for about Four days. It took about four days to figure out that there was no model out there that was working because you, you know I went on all the websites. I did research what other companies were doing, and nothing was working. There's a lot of PR, but I didn't see any evidence that any drugs were really getting into um, places like South Africa, for example, at the time. So we kind of had to make it up on our own, and so we, we decided to figure out you know what are the real barriers here, and or what are the barriers that we were aware of at the time, which we were pretty naive at the time, and we thought we were really focused on cost. You know we need to really get the cost down, and so we thought what well we'll, we'll We'll take a basket of countries, um, you know, the really the poor countries of the world, and we'll um, we'll provide the product at our manufacturing cost, and we'll just uh, we'll we'll bypass all the complex regulatory um, requirements in these in these markets and just uh, directly ship the product. And we came up with this model to do that, and we did that for. 
Um, that's, that really kicked off in about 2003, and we did that for about three years. And in, in about three years, I think we got up to a grand total of about 20,000 patients on, on treatment, which um, was an utter failure um, at the time. And, um, and a couple of things we learned between 2003 and 2006, a lot of us was talking to the NGOs, particularly MSF, but a number of other NGOs, actually Pangea, and Eric was at Pangea at the time, so we spent a lot of time with Eric talking about this. You know, a couple of things we were missing. Um, number one, registering the product is, is essential in every market. And, you know, you, you kind of would think, duh, of course, of course. But our feeling in 2001 was that there's this huge epidemic, this huge, you know, dr- need for these drugs that, you know, c- countries and governments would, would, would simplify the process and bring it in. That's not the case, and that's still not the case today. You still need to file a unique, separate dossier for every country around the world um, that is very you know, very cumbersome, very intensive, and uh, takes a lot of, lot of time and effort. So we, we realized that. But, and um, uh, the other thing um, that we realized that is that to do that, in, virtu- in almost every country around the world, you have to have a physical presence in the country. You can't do it remotely. You can't just send in your dossier and get them to review it. And we were a, con- a company in 2006. We're about 6,000 employees now. I think then we were probably about 2,000. But we had no presence in any of these markets, so we needed to have partners in each of these markets. And one thing we wanted to avoid is working with companies that were going to mark the price up or um, you know, really not stick with our mission of trying to really deliver low-cost um, uh, product to patients. So we, worked, we, we developed a plan to work with local companies in, in each of these areas. Um, there's also one thing we also did in 2006, which I think was unique in the industry, and still is unique today, I think, is that we took everything we're doing in what we call our access program, which is about 130 countries. We moved it out of our commercial organization and actually put it under under me, and um, because the idea was that if it's within the commercial organization, it's really not getting the focus that, that's really required because these are incredibly complex markets to work in. And then I made my best decision ever. I hired Clifford over there. Clifford's in the back of the room there. Um, <laughs> and Clifford Samuel in, in 2006 came and um, really we've been, you know, the, uh, the, the dynamic duo going around the world doing this since then. And, and Jim over here also has been very much part of this from the clinical side. The other thing we did in 2006, we really recognized, again, something we do at Gilead is we look at partnerships and we try to find out if we're not doing something well, we're, you know, we realized 20,000 wasn't enough. Who is doing a good job? And in 2006, the companies that were doing the best were the Indian generic companies. And we, we just basically challenged ourselves. We said, well, we're not make, we're, we, we agreed not to make profits in these markets. In fact, at the time, we were losing money because we were overproducing product that we didn't have demand for, or at least we didn't have customers for. Um, but who's doing a good job? And it was the Indian generic companies. So we said, well, why not work with them, license the product to them, have them make generic versions of it, and have them um, sell that into what is now 110 countries throughout the world? And, of course, you, 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 know, you debate this internally, and people say, well, what about drug diversion? And so we looked at that. That's actually never happened in HIV, really, in any, any grand scale. Um, what about drug quality? Well, we had been, at the time, that was when, you know, there was a lot of discussion around PEPFAR of the tentative approval process. So we're able to require our generic partners to have FDA tentative approval. So you have an FDA-approved product, or we also allowed uh, WHO prequalification. The other thing we're able to do is actually work with them on the manufacturing process. As, as Eric said, we can give them a technology transfer, but then also help them work on, you know, resolving any impurities or any of the, um, you know, uh, ch- uh, challenging solvents they may use in the process. So our manufacturing group will do that. Um, so we're able to um, really you know, leverage what the capabilities of the Indian companies have, which is you know, high-quality, um, high-volume, low-margin business. So we started that in, in 2006. The other thing I want to say, I want to get, I see, where's Anand? He's here. Um, I spoke to earlier. Is that we were able to work with our, we identified these local partners, and one thing we're also able to do, 
our drug safety group is actually train them to do pharmacovigilance in the markets, which is really important as well. That's something we couldn't do if we're not physically in the market. That's something our partners couldn't do at the time because they really, really weren't equipped for that. And so our drug safety group works on safety protocols with these uh, partners. So we did that in 2006. And I don't want to take, in between 2006 and today, we've gone from about uh, 20,000 patients to over 5 million patients. Um, who are receiving the product uh, through this through this program, and I think there's other things going on during this time. I mean, funding is a big issue, and this is also a time where there's tremendous growth in, in PEPFAR as well as global fund uh, programs, and also treatment guidelines advancing. But certainly, if you, you if you looked at the price of the drug at the time, we were selling at no profit price of $17 a month. The lowest generic price right now for the same product is about $4 a month. So um, it's also a it's not a, not a bet, but a challenge with our manufacturing group. We said no one can make this for cheaper than us. And I said, I'll bet these guys can. And um, they don't, they don't uh, try to de- debate that anymore. But, um, but that's because that's what these companies do. That, that is their core strength. Our core strength is research and development and developing innovative new molecules. Their core strength is actually taking those and making the process more efficient. So, um, so that's just in a nutshell what we've been doing in HIV. And it's, again, it's not just us. It's, it's the NGO community. It's working with institutions like PEPFAR, like Global Fund, like WHO, and working in country. We do a lot of medical education in country um, with local physicians and local um, uh, health, other health care providers working on different systems of, of delivering care. So it's been, it's been actually quite successful. There's still a lot more we need to do in HIV, and we continue to push the envelope both in terms of new research around better molecules and hopefully even you know, cheaper molecules, but also in advocacy to um, make, make delivery of, of care more efficient in these markets. And uh, I think right now we're probably treating, Eric, what is it, about 10 million right now? Mm-hmm. And that number should probably be about 25 million mm-hmm. um, conservatively, but maybe more like 30. Yep. I mean, in the U.S., basically, they're saying everybody who's HIV positive should be on care. So it's a really good start, and we're way far ahead of where we were six years ago, but we, we need to do more. So, so that's been our experience in HIV. And so um, Veronica showed the slide on hepatitis C, and we, we've been doing research in hepatitis C since, well, really since the mid-'90s, um, um, but it's been sort of um, uh, recently that you've really seen just an acceleration of the results of the, of the research that's been going on. And we're at a, um, uh, a real breakthrough moment in hepatitis C where we can easily cure the disease with very simple regimens um, that are very safe, very low toxicity, and we're getting to the point where... so. For those of you who aren't really totally familiar with hepatitis C, there are six different genotypes of hepatitis C that make it complicated, and the different genotypes are prevalent in different regions of the world and have different responses to therapy. But really, we're really getting to the point where um, you can take one pill. We're a couple years away from this, but we're getting to the point where you take one pill a day for 8 to 12 weeks, and you'll cure any genotype of the disease. That's incredibly important for the developing world because it's hard to do genotyping. So we're looking at the, these molecules that we have at Gilead um, that can do this, and we want to do what we've done with HIV, with hepatitis C. And there's, there's a lot of challenges that, that Veronica put on, put on the board. There's no PEPFAR. Uh, there's no global fund. There's very little awareness globally or little activism globally around hepatitis C. I mean, with HIV in 2001, there was plenty of activism. There wasn't funding, but there was a lot of activism. So we don't, we don't have anything really like what we had in HIV at the time. But I do think there's a will. I think, I think, and I think that is growing right now, and, and you're seeing more uh, development of that. And I actually do believe in the next few years we will have funding um, for hepatitis C, maybe not the level we're having for HIV. And certainly I think it will start in co-infection, HIV, hepatitis C, co-infection. But I think that's coming. But we want to, we, we want to replicate this. So um, 
but we've, we've done this before. We've been through this. So we're going to start you know, taking a look at what we've done in HIV and try to um, look at hepatitis C and how can we adapt our HIV model to hepatitis C. So we've been um, spending a lot of time, you know, even before we uh, launched the drug here in the U.S. while it was still in development, talking to uh, the various NGOs, talking to uh, ministries of health around the world, talking to different funders about what, you know, what is coming in terms of the science, what are the opportunities and what are the challenges, and trying to get ahead of it as much as we could. And um, as usual, people tend to react um, uh, much more when the reality becomes more present, which is, which is happening right now. But, but we have made a lot of progress. So we're looking right now at doing a very similar approach that, as we've done in HIV, which starts with um, really the, the, the basic premise, which is to um, register the product globally. And we'll, we've learned our lesson there. We're not going to wait six years this time. We're going to do it. We're doing it right now, actually. The registrations are, are ongoing globally. With hepatitis C, unlike HIV, we have an added challenge, which is in a lot of markets. We have to run clinical trials separately in those markets to support approval of, of the product. So that includes India, that includes China, that includes Vietnam, uh, Japan. So we're doing that. All that work is ongoing right now to make sure that we can get the product into these markets as quickly as possible. And then we're also going to be looking at getting um, uh, is cost. Cost is going to be a big issue. And I looked at the, um, the the reading material that you provided, and I actually didn't read it, but I saw that one quote saying something about that it's going to be a challenge with the cost of direct acting antivirals. And I, I find that um, from from my perspective, be well, we haven't actually priced it yet, so um, <laughs> you know, so I, I don't know what cost this person is referring to. We've actually priced in one market with which is Egypt, and they're actually um, scaling up quite quite um, quite high right now in Egypt. Right now, they're going to probably be using. Uh, somewhere between 50 to 100,000 patients will be treated this year um, with our product in Egypt, which um, is pretty good out of the gate uh, for this. And we're going to ramp that up over time with them. So, um, but Egypt is a, a, is, a, is a very good model of how this is going to need to work initially, which is governments coming in and working with us directly to, provide, to purchase the product. So we're going to start with a tiered pricing, which is going to have you know, low income, low middle income, middle income markets, and then high income, which is you know, U.S. and Europe, essentially. And um, you know, the, the low income price, which we really have set in, in Egypt, it's about, it's about um, um, 99% discount to the U.S. price. So it's a very, very low price um, for them, and they're very pleased with that. And, but in addition, we are going to look at um, we are going to be doing generic licensing, and we've been talking with our partners in uh, India for some time right now, and, and we'll probably be able to. Um, I'm, I'm going to look at Clifford because he's the one that's working on this right now. Probably have those licenses done in the next few months, um, and. You know, once we get those licenses done, then we need to go through the process of scaling up their manufacturing process. But um, and so that's going to include probably somewhere between. Um, well, we, we, we've announced it'll be at least sixty countries, but I think Clifford's now looking more like eighty right now, and that'll probably grow over time. So we're in, the, in conversations with the, uh, the communities around the world, the governments, to try to find out which which countries really need to have the absolute lowest price because the generic price will be the lowest. Um, and, and then which countries can we price through our tiered pricing model at appropriate price. So that's, that's ongoing right now. The other thing we need to do is change treatment guidelines around the world because um, what's, what's something we also learned in the HIV space is that until the WHO recommends use of the product um, in many of these markets, they won't use it. Um, so we need to work with the WHO to make that happen. So we've had a long, ongoing discourse with the WHO on this as well. So um, that is what we're doing. I think I answer all your questions. Yes. So. Okay, yeah. I'll, no, I'll... that was great. That was absolutely great. And I've got so many follow-up questions, and I'm sure uh, people in the audience have too. But let's let's go to Steph now, and and um, have you make some introductory comments from your perspective, your vast history, and in public health and health economics, and 
being at the Gates Foundation and now uh, Dean of the School of Public Health here, um, where do you see the role for, for schools of public health, not just this one, but also this one, and collaborations that, that are possible here in the Bay Area to, to feed into what's, what's actually happening on the ground, uh, the kind of evaluations that need to be done to, to really assess the impact of these programs, et cetera? Well, you're being nice to recognize my new job, but I, I realized that the initial idea to have me participate had to do with my old job and the role of philanthropy more than the role of schools. Um, I, actually, while you, you guys were talking, I was thinking back to a meeting that we had when I was working for what was then the Global Program on AIDS in Geneva. We had the first discussions, and you guys from Pharma will remember, but I think in 1993 it was still Burroughs' welcome, right? It wasn't, didn't become... Glaxo didn't come into it. Anyway, I, I, whatever it was, it was the company that had AZT back then. And, that was his and, company. And uh, <laughs> well, well, when did the name change? Was it still Burroughs' welcome in that? Yeah. Welcome there, yeah. So, and we had a meeting, and I wouldn't be surprised if you were, <laughs> you were even there, but... Um, and it was in GPA, in the Global Program on AIDS, to talk about whether we might be able to talk about differential pricing for developing countries. And um, I'm a health economist, and it just stood to reason. And that's what happens when you just learn things from books and not in the real world. But since airlines price their seats differentially to take advantage of the fact that the you know, middle-class person who's planning their vacation six months in advance will end up getting a much better price than the business um, customer who's making a last-minute reservation, and you can have a threefold difference in price for the two seats sitting next to each other. It made no sense to me that the that AZT was being offered at the same price in Tanzania as it was in the U.S. And so, when I tried to um, impress upon my colleagues from industry that of that logic at the time, it became clear that diversion was an issue, um, but they weren't really worried about diversion. The reason that companies were not differentially pricing back then was because they were concerned about the impact of having a compound that was offered at a 99% discount in Tanzania and what that would do to negotiations, price negotiations, in the rich markets. And less important, perhaps, in the U.S. than in countries that negotiate monopolistically, Australia, Japan, the Netherlands, whatever. Uh, So it's been fascinating for me to watch how something that was in fact forced and had in fact existed for a long time in the vaccine space, but not in the drug space to the degree that it does now, is now, I mean, I think the U.S. doesn't blink at the idea, and I don't know to what degree that's different. In, they they in, blink. <laughs> <laughs> we, the concept that you would have a hundredfold difference in price is something that was unthinkable not very long ago, right? It's certainly thinkable today. I understand people are still blinking about your price in this market, but... Um, <laughs> but um, it has been an interesting evolution. So when I think about um, what is the role of philanthropy, so I spent the last four years at the Gates Foundation, and the one very important role of philanthropy, and the reason I suggested that I go third, is because the role of philanthropy is in many ways defined by the space that's not occupied by the two people on either side of me. right? So the Gates Foundation, for example, has not been involved historically in drug development for HIV. And the reason for that is because there's a vigorous and robust market for HIV antiretroviral drugs in rich countries, 
So huge amount of commercial interest in producing drugs for those markets. Actually, now recently, the, the foundation has become interested in HIV and the re, in therapeutics. And the reason it's become interested is because we're at the point now where we have really cheap drugs, as you've just mentioned, and, really, and they're very readily available. Drugs are no longer the impediment to treating people for HIV in developing countries. Um, the one bit, very big problem, though, is adherence, which is a problem everywhere, but it's especially a problem in developing countries, in part because of healthcare system issues and in part because um, you don't have the ability to go to second-line, third-line drugs as you do in, in uh, wealthier countries. So the foundation has started to invest in long-acting injectable drugs. And the reason it has started um, investing in that is because suddenly in therapeutics, you're talking potentially about products that might not have much of a market in the rich world for lots of reasons, one of which being you can't turn it off. And from a liability perspective, having a compound that you can't turn off in this country um, maybe is likely to have a much smaller market, even conservatively speaking. So... In general, the role of the foundation is thinking about where is it in the R&D space and where is it in the delivery space that these guys can't act. And the difficulty of doing that is that when the foundation is negotiating with the private sector, whether it's on the development of a new vaccine or on the development of a new drug, what we don't want to do is spend any money that they would have spent anyway. And in the delivery space, we don't want to spend any money delivering something that we could get a government to deliver anyway. Because... I mean, the HIV budget that, um, you know, when I was at the foundation was, you know, between $400 and $450 million a year, which is a lot of money. But these guys will spend multiples of that to buy one compound. And these guys spend more than tenfold that in a year, right? So, and the NIH spends more than ten times what we spend just on HIV in a year. So, the, the in terms of the R&D space. So, the foundation space, and the Gates Foundation does occupy a very large proportion of the HIV space, and in part because it did that, many other foundations now occupy a much smaller part of the, the HIV uh, space. Um, we have to be incredibly responsive to what these guys are or are not willing to do. And that's a dynamic process. So, for example, when the foundation started to get into the thought of producing um, uh, monoclonal antibodies that are effective against a very broad range of HIV types with a thinking that that might be used prophylactically by injecting antibodies into people to protect them against infection. That was kind of wild and crazy out there. It has become mainstream NIH. So in the R&D space, how to be complementary to the NIH is a constantly evolving process, right? Similarly, in the delivery space, if the foundation invests in something which can then be taken over, that's something that absolutely needs to be encouraged. And in collaboration with the private sector, you know, there are some things, I mean, we were just talking with Roche colleagues before, that it's very unlikely that the private sector will invest in the development of a, an incidence assay for HIV, 
Because an incidence assay for HIV will probably never be used for diagnosing incidence in individuals. And therefore, the market will be very limited because it will be used for monitoring purposes by national programs. It will be used for research. But it's unlikely to have significant returns for investment. But it could have very important public health returns. So that's a situation where there may be a very logical reason for the foundation to invest in something. In the case of, of HIV therapeutics, that case wasn't there. In the case of TB therapeutics, um, or in the case of a TB vaccine, then you're talking about a limited wealthy market, a huge developing country market, companies potentially unwilling to invest if it's, um, if it's not yet de-risked, and the challenge for the foundation is figuring out when is it de-risked to the point that you could let private investment and the private sector take over. And one of the two things that the foundation has done recently, and then I'll shut up, one is thinking about how to collaborate in the private equity market so that let's say a company um, was potentially interested in a new TB vaccine, but they weren't willing to spend $100 million for the phase three trial. Then could there be a foundation private equity partnership which would enable leveraging a private capital because the foundation would provide a stop-loss guarantee. And so the foundation's been doing a lot of work in that, in, on those kinds of mechanisms with, with um, other equity markets. The other thing that we did before I left at the foundation, which I think was one of the most interesting mechanisms, is something called program-related investments. So, for example, let's say that Gilead has a new product up its sleeve that it's decided it's not going to take forward for an oral um, application, but it's a very high-potency product. Very high-potency being necessary for a long-acting injectable because you've got to be able to inject three months' worth of, of a drug with a single injection. So it can't be something that requires many milligrams. But let's say for whatever reason Gilead wasn't taking that forward for commercial development for an oral, nor were they willing to spend money to take it forward for commercially for an injectable. Well... Instead of the foundation um, uh, doing what it, a foundation traditionally do, which is to give a grant and saying, we're going to give you a grant to develop this product, what the program-related investments can do is to say, instead of the foundation spending its grant money, so any foundation in this country, what does it do? It has a corpus of capital. That corpus of capital spins off um, uh, income. And by law, the foundation has to spend 5% of that corpus every year. But the realization was, well, that means that that entire corpus of capital, which is an equivalent capital of about $60 billion at the Gates Foundation, they're very smart people that invest that money to make money so that the foundation will have money to spend, right? But the, the realization was, what if we, the program people at the foundation, could tell the finance people who are sitting on that corpus what to do with their money? So one of the things we could ask them to do with their money is invest in Gilead's product so that they're co-financing the development of this um, high-potency, potentially injectable compound. Now, why would I want to do that? Well, I'd want to do that in part because there could be money to be there could be you know money could be made from that investment. So the foundation wouldn't want to give up the possibility of return. And so the way it works at the foundation is that as the HIV guy, I could ask the corpus to invest in Gilead. The corpus would do an analysis of the return on that investment, the expected return on that investment, high risk, upstream, et cetera. And then what does the foundation do? The foundation says, if I get 5% or better expected return on that investment, I'll make the investment. If it's less than 5%, then with the program money, the, the money that I would have granted to somebody, I have to make them whole. 
Now, they could lose their shirt. They could make a $40 million investment and lose it all, or they could make $400 million on their $40 million investment. That's their problem. But on the basis of their analysis, if they think they're going to make a 2% return, then I have to pay 3% to the corpus so that they're whole, so that they're doing their job, you know, safeguarding their capital. And that's been, I think, a very interesting mechanism for how private philanthropy can help to leverage the private sector. And um, I mean, there are other, there are very similar mechanisms. So uh, one could be an investment, like I just mentioned. One could be that we say to Gilead, listen, you produce a product with these, these specifications, we'll guarantee you a billion dollars worth of market. Now, and why am I not worried about that if I'm at the foundation? Well, because I know that Eric, in his old job, will buy it. So, in fact, what's the risk? Let's say that we were talking about an HIV vaccine, maybe not for Gilead, but let's say that we were talking about this for Merck, for an HIV vaccine. Then what's my exposure in terms of this guarantee? My exposure is that if I promise a billion dollars to the first person over the line with a product that meets, meets my specs, they're going to make their billion dollars. Now, he's going to pay for it. Unless somebody comes along before they've made their million dollars and has a better product that people now want to buy instead. He wants to buy instead. So then I'm going to be stuck making the original manufacturer whole because that's what I promised. And he's going to want to buy the best product. Or maybe I'm going to make sure that that first product is cheap enough that he still wants to buy it. But one way or another, the exposure that I have is not the billion dollars. It's the billion dollars discounted by the likelihood that they're not going to buy it. Right, and so this creates all kinds of new and interesting mechanisms for how um, private philanthropy and private foundations can work with folks on on both sides of me to, uh, to stimulate the production of products that are appropriate for the part of the world that that the foundation's interested in supporting. And um, so that's that's uh, um, that's where I'll stop. Okay. Well, thank you. I didn't say a word about schools of public health. We can come back to that in the discussions. <laughs> <laughs> So um, start thinking about some questions that that you would like to ask, but I thought I would just ask a couple here up front, um, and maybe to both Eric and and Steph. So in terms of of, what we walked through uh, with hepatitis C, not having the gates behind it, not having PEPFAR, if, if you were still at PEPFAR now, Eric, and, and had you been in London and seen all of the exciting data that was just presented on you know, curing everybody in the world with hepatitis C within six to eight weeks, maximum 12 weeks with a you know, soon-to-be single tablet, um, would, you, would you talk to, to, um, you know, to the administration about expanding the program. I, I know that HIV, HIV co-infected people are obviously being taken care of, but you know, would, would you advocate for an expansion into HCV treatment as monotherapy? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I think um, it was discussed before I left. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw this looming. Um, HCV is a co-infection with HIV. Uh, arguably, you could certainly defend that. Uh, your injection drug using uh, populations have um, uh, significant uh, rates of HCV and HIV in the whole planet, everywhere, everywhere. Uh, and I think the uh, utility of um, the treatment is breathtaking. So this really is a moment of um, uh, of being able to look at the 180 or the 280 million, 280 million people HCV infected, 
uh, it, um, uh, we need as a public health community on the planet uh, to figure out a way to get people in front of what is not uh, the same um, uh, duration of treatment that HIV presents to a medical delivery system, uh, a lifelong interface, uh, but a, uh, a 6, 12, 24-week um, uh, cure. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, the cost-effectiveness, the cost-benefit analysis, which both should be done in a rigorous way, uh, will show that they probably are both cost-effective and, and cost-benefit. Uh, and I think the... Making assumptions about price. Making assumptions <laughs> about price. Agreed. But I think that um, uh, the... So just, just to say it, just to uh, kind of reflect the reality that uh, these decisions are made with, uh, it becomes a um, somewhat of a zero-sum game discussion within... Uh, uh, the administration around what can we afford to pay for. Uh, the science is clear. So no one's arguing that this doesn't make sense. It's basically an argument of can you pay for it. Then everything you put up in terms of the uh, constituencies that take that argument both to the White House and to the Hill um, are uh, uh, critical for the uh, type of uh, underwriting that the White House would have to do to uh, balloon a resource that would cover uh, the HCV burden. Um, but there's a will to do that. Uh, but I think that it, because uh, PEPFAR over the last five years was dropped by 14% in its funding, okay, it was never going up, it was going down every year, uh, we have a situation where I'm not optimistic uh, that there is going to be uh, new money on the table. Uh, but what that uh, means is we shift it to uh, discussions around uh, how can we pay for it, shared responsibility, uh, engage those stakeholders in discussions country by country, uh, uh, as well as foundations uh, around uh, what can we do in a collective sense uh, to get as many people under the curve for treatment as we can. Uh, and we start to triage. Are there people who are more in need of it uh, before others are in need of it? Uh, in HIV, the 10 million people who are on treatment, it's not the 30 million or 27 to 30 million that need it, uh, but it has debulked the inpatient congestion that I talked about at the beginning of the talk. Uh, and that opens up the medical delivery system for HIV, but more, or just as importantly, for other diseases that uh, HIV-positive patients now are going to die from. Uh, so um, I think the administration, and I think President Obama in particular, um, wants a multilateral forum, wants a uh, contribution from our European colleagues and not just the United States. And the United States is the bulk of your global health uh, dollar on the table. Uh, 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 it, if you say the United States and the, Ga the Gates Foundation, you've covered most of it. Mm. Uh, you know, DFID is way down. France, you know, uh, uh, were uh, players, but they're, you know, uh, so for example, um, uh, uh, the United States puts $8.3 billion into global health programs. About six of it was HIV-TB related. Uh, and the next closest country is DFID, is the UK, and that's about um, $600 million for HIV-TB combined. 
then the next country is France, and they're way, way down from there. So I, I just, you know, we're talking about a, uh, a whole, um, uh, it, it is the United States who is the main uh, player here. But that's not um, as sustainable as getting uh, an expectation uh, reinforced and supported in diplomatic channels that puts the expectation out that you, European Union, and you, richer countries, Germany in particular, China's moving uh, in this direction, um, you need to think of yourself uh, and the responsibility, ethical responsibility you have because you hold more resources. Uh, there is a flat-out ethical uh, connection because you can out there that this administration has started uh, to put on the table. Uh, and uh, so I'm optimistic. I think uh, for Greg to say that he thinks it's, hey, CV is going to get the treatment dollars, I think it'll, it'll be a crescendo-type deployment, but I am also confident that uh, the planet will look at this and respond. That's too many people to let move through uh, extraordinary periods of suffering and death, uh, the leading cause of liver transplant, uh, for something you can cure. So I, I, I see it coming. There is no constituency that I'm aware of that is effectively putting this out, although there's a lot that's starting. I'm less optimistic than you are. There you go. Um, I think I'm optimistic that we'll make a major dent in global disease burden because most people with HCV live in middle-income countries. Right. So, and I think that the, the, you know, the Egypts of this world, the Chinas of this world, will decide that it makes sense for them to treat. Um, but the likelihood that we're going to add another disease mm -hmm. to the equivalent of the global funder PEPFAR mm -hmm. um, with what we know now about epidemiology and, you know, I, I, I'm not saying we'll never get there, mm -hmm. but I, I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic that in absence of some very important activism um, from people <laughs> sitting in this room and sitting elsewhere, um, I don't see a groundswell of, of, um, of activism. Uh, and I don't understand yet anywhere near enough about w what are the characteristics and demographics of those populations. Because the, the reason I can become optimistic is the extent to which people with HCV can start to look like people with HIV from a self-generated activism perspective, mm -hmm. right? And I, I don't, I'm not an HIV, HCV person, so I don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I, I, that's where I'm, I'd be curious. I mean, and especially if disease tends to be later in life. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we had a magical combination of empowered, mm -hmm. enlightened, educated, young people in HIV that was a combustible yeah. mix of activism that I'd be curious to know how other people think about that, the prospects for that in HCV. Well, I think that really is one of the major challenges that HCV faces, that uh, it doesn't have that sort of sympathetic, you know, face that, that HIV has in terms of saving the babies and, and, and you know, the, the sort of the disappearance of, of the whole middle middle um, aged or, or, or young professionals, you know, you lose all the teachers, you lose all the nurses, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that definitely is a challenge that, that HCV has. But to me, it just seems so compelling because you can cure it, whereas HIV, you can. So in HIV, we always talk about the treatment mortgage. So, you know, people that were critical of PEPFAR and 
putting more people on treatment would, would say, well, then we'll just line up with this treatment mortgage because if people don't die, you'll just have more people with HIV. And, and the more you treat, the more people you'll have for, you know, forever, for lifelong. But with H- HCV, you can cure them, and, and so it's sort of a one-time thing. And, and to me, that in itself sort of is the compelling argument why, why you should do it. But, um, but what, what mitigates against that, I think, is the fact that HIV was such a clear death sentence. Well, I think that HCV is a probabilistic death sentence. Right? I, I don't know what that does to the activism issue as well. I mean, these are questions for me, because I, yeah. but I think it really raises questions. I mean, I think you, you've, you, these are definitely challenges that we face. Um, now I'm, a, I'm an optimistic person by nature, Good. so but you have to be to, to do this. But I think that there's a couple things that, that give me hope. First of all, in terms of the funding, um, I think that people are very gun-shy of actually saying they're going to do it until they're ready to do it. Right. But I'm getting a sense that when we're talking to the different institutions, whether it's Global Fund or PEPFAR, when Eric was on board, and, and today, um, as well as Unitate and others, they are thinking about this. And I think they want to do it. But what they don't want to do is take the foot off the gas on HIV at the same time. So they, they don't want to make this at the expense of what's already been accomplished in HIV. And we're trying to figure out how to do that. So it is a matter of finding more money and not, not taking from, from the pot that, that currently exists. And I think that there's going to be some fighting around that. But I also think that there's, um, there's another thing that's working for us, which is a lot of the activism that, that I see developing right now, and we feel a lot of this because it's coming after us, um, is the same people that have done this in HIV. So, so there is a community that's they're like, they're like, we've done this before and we're going to do it again. And we're kind of saying, can we kind of do it different, maybe work together this time, but um, <laughs> please. Um, so, but, 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 but they're there. And I think that that is growing right now. And they see this as a cure. They see this as an opportunity. And if you, if you do some just, and, and the math on this is pretty compelling, because if you look, even at the prices that Gilead is talking about right now, for a billion dollars, you can cure about a half a million people. Cure. Um, that's, that's compelling if you think about what you can do with PEPFAR-like money or Global Fund money over a 10-year period of time in terms of, 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 but I also agree with, with, with Steph in terms of the epidemiology has to, has to occur. We have to know more about this disease. We know about it in Egypt. Um, we know something about um, some other markets, but Africa, we know very little, even what the genotype is and who's infected and how it's being transmitted. So there's a lot of work, but I, but I, do, think it, I do think it's going to happen. It's going to take time, and you know, I think that, that all of you can be part of this, and we're going to be part of this, and you know, I think it's just going to take that kind of support. So that's a perfect segue to the to, to my next question. And um, one of the things um, everybody that works with the forum knows is that you can get called on to to make comments. Um, but of course, we also want comments, um, you know, questions coming from you. But in terms of of the epidemiology and just knowing, understanding the diseases, and in an earlier class we covered, you know, the fact that we have six genotypes, et cetera, et cetera, and the diagnostic challenges. And we have people here from Roche Molecular Systems, and um, um, I think that's, and then we have PacBio in terms of diagnostic. That's a little bit different in terms of, of this kind of diagnostics. But so what do you think, um, so maybe also a question to, to Clifford, who's, who's actually managing these, these programs and, and sending in all of these dossiers. Um, so you want to go and, and have these available for treatment, but... There's this huge, uh, you know, uh, sort of finding the patients, uh, diagnosing them, linking them to care. 
So to what extent do you see the need for, for more formal collaborations that if you are going to go into a country like Egypt, well, you are not going in there. You, you're providing drug at a certain price that Egypt is going to do, and you're going to have your drug approved in Egypt so that this can happen. But to what extent are you looking at potential for collaboration, and to what extent are you know, people like Trido and, and others and Paul Baum from, from Roche thinking about this and, and what your role would be? And the reason I ask is because the HCV Drug Development Advisory Group that the forum has just had a meeting in London uh, where we talked about global access for the first time. Uh, usually we talk about what's the appropriate control arm now that, you know, supposedly has been approved, you know, those kinds of questions, which are also very interesting and important. But people really wanted us to start talking about global access, and, and people just kind of put some of the programs out there. And our industry co-chair, um, uh, who's from Janssen, then basically asked the question, who is going to tell us what to do? Who is going to call us to the table? And, and give us our marching orders about how we can contribute. And it was a very, very interesting discussion with people there from Quest and Quintiles who were talking about the networks they have in countries and how they could contribute. We talked, Merck was there, and we talked about vaccine programs and, and the tens and hundreds of thousands of serum samples that are stored that could possibly be used for, for just seroprevalence studies, for example. So... Our members are asking, how can we help? You know, what can we do? So I'd like to invite some of you uh, in the audience to, to maybe make some comments about that. But this is where the Gates Foundation comes in again, because in addition to being a funder, uh, you, uh, the Gates Foundation can also act as a convener uh, with quite a bit of clout. And I know Bill Gates has frequently does CEO-type meetings with, with companies and and is, you know, has, has some convincing power in terms of encouraging other people you know, to step up to the plate. So it's not so much government funding now, but industry involvement outside of Gilead and things we have already talked about. So that could be something that the Gates Foundation could help with. But let me open it up to, to the floor and see if there are any, any questions from, or any comments from, from that. Or if you would also like to comment about the need to collaborate with sure. diagnostic companies. I mean, so I say we were, we're, we're in discussions with a number of diagnostic companies. And, and what we're trying to do is, is two things, is talk about what we need today to do what we want to do. Um, and that is really point of care. Um, and then as well as a low-cost uh, genotyping uh, for, for some of these markets. But also being very clear that we're probably about a year and a half away from having a pan-genotypic Mm -hmm. a regimen, so you'll be able to treat 12 weeks any genotype. So that will eliminate the need for genotyping, which I think puts a constraint on the uh, diagnostic makers. Do they want to invest in making genotyping when that's going to be obsolete in two years? But, but we, do need, we do need diagnostics um, today uh, to make this happen. But I think the most important one is point of care. Okay. I don't, Clifford, do you, do you want to use the microphone for the Clifford, do you anything to add to that? is uh, the need to not just make drug available, but to follow on with, um, with medical education and training in a means of helping to strengthen healthcare systems. Because we, we find that uh, as you get into the countries, you make the drug available, there are not enough doctors or 
trained healthcare professionals. And Chana, who's here now, he, he actually arrived. Oh, there you are. Yeah, um, um, wrote a brilliant article in New England Journal last week and, and talks about you know, political will and, and the need to, to come together. A demonstration of that is what Greg and I have been able to do in Egypt. Mm-hmm. which is to really capitalize on the fact that the Egyptian Ministry of Health, although it has changed several times, um, in addition to the National Liver Committee, has really demonstrated the, the, a keen interest in working together to help bring down prevalence and solve this problem. Um, they, they're talking to diagnostic companies, they're talking to, to, to Janssen and, and others, so it, it's a clear demonstration of how something can, can get started. We, we anticipate that we'll do the same in Pakistan, and, and there are lots of individuals who really want to see a cure now. So um, I think education and, and, and training and prevention, and also there's also a lot of reinfection for hep C. So you have to focus on, on, on um, awareness campaigns as well. Since you called us uh, to yeah. the floor, Veronica. Um, so I, I think we can draw a lot of uh, important lessons from the HIV experience. You know, I think um, uh, w- one thing that I'm struck by this uh, panel is the importance of a multilateral effort, you know, private uh, foundations, um, governments, and, and industry and partnering to, to scale up. So I think one of the big successes that Eric um, pointed out earlier was around um, early infant diagnosis and, and uh, prevention of uh, mother-to-child um, of, of HIV, um, that could not have happened without some of the initial pilot projects um, where Pangea and Roche and uh, Clinton Foundation really um, showed that this can work, you can implement it, and um, it's scalable. Um, on the flip side, we've also seen uh, efforts where you know, we sort of came to the, the, the party by ourselves. Uh, one example of that is um, viral load uh, scale-up in developing countries. We've had uh, low pricing in um, developed, uh, developing countries in order to increase access, but without the healthcare infrastructure and systems in place to um, take that offer and implement it into uh, laboratories, then you know, what we've seen is, uh, is a lot of underutilization. So, so I think the more dialogue that we have between, um, between these parties, uh, the better. And actually only recently have we started to see um, uh, increase uh, focus on, on scale-up of, uh, of monitoring for HIV uh, because foundations like the Clinton Foundation have approached us and said, hey, I think we can broker a deal between governments and, uh, and industry to make this happen. So I, I think something like that would really be needed to, uh, to move the needle on uh, hepatitis C. Okay. So I remember... Um Back in the earlier days of HIV, uh, when, the, when the global response was first being rolled out and WHO had this 3 by 5 program, basically meaning 3 million people on treatment by 2005. But they made a very big point of it being a public health approach, which basically was the and I believe it was D4T3-Dicinavirapine mm-hmm. was one of the first generic combinations. Mm-hmm. And as Eric mentioned, D4T is a pretty nasty drug. I mean, it served, you know, it, it, it did help people also in the U.S. initially when that's all we had. But it certainly was not a drug that should have ever been distributed that, that far and wide. But also made a very strong point about saying it's, it's a public health approach. We'll just treat everybody that's, that's uh, sick, 
and that has a CD4 count below a certain level, except most people didn't have access to CD4 testing, but really actively discouraged by low testing, uh, saying that that was not necessary. You could manage it by clinical symptoms and, and, and CD4 testing occasionally, which, you know, as you all know, the antivirals are antivirals. They suppress viral load, and as a result of that, the CD4 cells go up. So CD4 is not an immediate effect of treatment. And and I don't know, Eric, maybe, maybe you could comment on that, too, because you mentioned you know, the role of, of WHO normative guidelines, and if it's not on their essential medicines list, you know, it's not going to be used. And if they don't put it in their guidelines, it's not going to be used. But I just wonder if we sort of lost a moment of opportunity there, because I think a lot of companies were really interested in point-of-care viral load testing, but they're really wasn't this, this incentive that, Steph, you mentioned that you'd say, well, you developed the test, we promise you a billion uses because it was being discouraged. So, I think we're getting up there very quickly. Um, I, I think that WHO is now aligned with mm-hmm. what you're mm-hmm. saying. I think that the international community is aligned. Um, I think that some CD4 manufacturers are worried, <laughs> um, to be honest. Um, and I think that not only is it clearly better for monitoring, mm-hmm. but I think the question is how quickly does CD4 become irrelevant in with respect to initiation? Exactly, I, mean, I think yeah. that what we talked about before the meeting is that it's still very relevant for prophylaxis, but it, in terms of total volume, it, it gets smaller and smaller. I mean, the, where I thought you were going, which is what I was going to ask, is um, you know, if HIV is invisible and needs a diagnostic test to identify who's infected. Um, it's less invisible than HCV is. And if HIV suffers from a very long lag from exposure to illness, at least communities see patterns of transmission. They see a woman getting sick and then her husband getting sick or vice versa. So the biology of it starts to permeate the culture and the social norms start to respond. HCV makes that much harder right, in terms of um, the likelihood of it being recognized as present in the community and certainly not recognized as related to the transmission event. So it'll be interesting to see what that means. I mean, one of the discussions that I had the other day with one of your colleagues at Gilead was about um, uh, not just the cost-effectiveness discussions and not just the epidemiology, but what does that mean for screening strategies? And where does one focus efforts to identify people who could benefit from treatment? Because it's not like we have lines outside the door um, in the same way. And so that's, uh, I think, lots of difficult operational logistical questions to be solved to have effective large-scale programs. Uh, I would like to close up by asking each of you um, to very briefly comment about, um, this is in the interest of across the Bay collaboration. So, Eric, you've just come back and are leading this initiative. Could you just then, in a few words, explain what the implementation science program is going to look like? What is your vision? Just just very oh, briefly. Sure. Um, uh, I, I mean, think it would be in- of interest to this audience to know. It is much about what we just spoke about. It is trying to uh, uh, take what we know uh, and... Um, uh, move it to where the burden of disease resides and to uh, target uh, the, um, a planning 
process that is usually convened by the Ministry of Health in most countries uh, with stakeholders that can implement, uh, manage, oversee, monitor, and evaluate these programs in an excellent manner. Uh, and to, instead of looking at a stuttered or frustrated rollout with our colleagues in ministries of health that are undercapacitated, to start to identify the ministry as the entity that needs to be capacitated. Uh, and it is my belief that we can um, uh, uh, work with ministries of health uh, to do that by using local academic medical centers, local uh, centers of excellence, uh, local uh, private sector uh, that uh, knows how to do procurement and train mid-level managers uh, in a way that, that enhances and leaves a network or web of support that allows the ministry to do it uh, for the duration. Okay. Um, and that's, that's the basic idea. The Cadre Brain Trust at UC Berkeley, at UC San Francisco, uh, at Stanford, uh, the Silicon Valley uh, uh, area, uh, UC Davis, uh, gives us a uh, huge fertile field to put that purse string around uh, to bring the knowledge, be it with a disease or with a system or uh, even with a marketing uh, uh, question. Uh, but I believe the UCB-UCSF link is what will be the backbone of this, and we're very excited about trying to do it. I happen to know the dean of the School of Public Health. Oh, you did. <laughs> uh, who uh, is a visionary in all of this work and has dedicated much of his life to these principles. And uh, I think this is an exciting moment to try to uh, pull that purse string together, at least across the bay, now okay. that we've got a new bridge up. We got the new bridge. So, Steph, uh, you're, you've also been here for, for a short while, and, and so your vision for for the school and, and kind of in the context that we talked about here and uh, cross-bay area collaboration and where's the school heading? Um, I think that we start with academic excellence and what we strive for is greater public health impact. Uh, I am... Um, I believe that there isn't anybody who works in public health on this campus that didn't become interested in public health because of their desire to make, to make significant transformative change in the world. And what I, my vision is a school that maintains academic excellence and achieves greater impact because the focus of its research and the focus of its training does a better job at getting translated into impact. Okay. So, <laughs> um, I guess we're just, I think we're at a really exciting moment right now for, for hepatitis C in terms of what we can do. Um, scientifically, um, it looks like we, you know, for all practical purposes, have sort of solved how to cure this disease very simply, very cost effective. And I think we have the opportunity to take what we've learned in HIV, because I think there are many big differences, but there's a lot of similarities, and apply that to hepatitis C. But because we have a cure, we can actually come up with a way to actually, I think, do even more um, with this disease. 
We've talked about a number of challenges uh, today in this room. Um, we've talked about epidemiology, and I agree. The U.S. is not the problem for epidemiology. And please, I was actually talking to the developing world where we don't know a lot about the uh, epidemiology in certain places, and it's a challenge. Um, there are um, reimbursement issues. There's just no funding right now, and including here in the U.S. People aren't really prepared for the investment in the U.S. right now for hepatitis C and globally. Um, to do what we need to do, and we need to really rally around the the value story and the the opportunity that we we have there, um, the the face of HIV and the the marginalized populations for hepatitis C. We've seen that in HIV, and we've I would like to say we've solved it, but. I think that we've learned some things in HIV, such as don't be judgmental, um, don't do things risk-based, um, treat everybody the same, um, but also um, make sure you have resources going into the, those communities. And something, something we're doing very much in HIV right now is trying to pour um, money into mostly um, uh, communities of color in the U.S., which are disproportionately impacted and have less um, resources and trying, we need to look at doing that with, with hepatitis C because um, if we wait, then we're going to find ourselves five or six years from now with you know, having you know, treated a lot of the, the white baby boomers who are you know, um, um, well um, uh, uh, in, into the healthcare system and have missed a lot, lot of opportunities. But, but the, the good news is we have this in front of us, and, and so we need, and I guess I was, what I was really going on is that we have all these challenges, but that shouldn't stop us from moving, and we have to take more of a scientific approach to this than a, you know, I guess what I call it an engineering approach. We're not going to have the perfect solution to all these challenges today, and we're going to learn, we're going to probably make a lot of mistakes as we try to take them on, but um, we have to do, you know, cope with our best hypothesis of what's going to work go and try it, and what doesn't work, we have to adjust. And if we don't do that, we're going to sit here planning and planning and planning and never actually doing what we need to do. So whether it's getting out into sub-Saharan Africa, getting the drug registered, getting the drug available, not saying, well, we're going to wait until we have the perfect diagnostic to do that. That's, that's, that makes no sense at all. Um, and likewise, everywhere we're going to be working, just we have to move ahead and not waiting for funding. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.